is possible to become free from debt, financial worry, your boss, and your zip code. You can start living a life you love, but first, you need to find your freedom. Using financial independence and lifestyle design principles, you can create the life of your dreams now. There are many paths to freedom, and that is what this podcast is all about. My name is Becky from 20free.co, and I am the host of the Find Your Freedom podcast. Today's interview is with Carol Pittner, who co-authored the new book, Raising Your Money-Savvy Family for Next Generation Financial Independence, with her father, Doug Nordman. Carol joined the Navy on an ROTC scholarship and has been stationed around the world on a destroyer and an aircraft carrier before moving to the reserves. She and her active duty spouse are rapidly approaching financial independence on a high savings rate, and they've just started their own family. In this interview, Carol shares what her early retiree parents taught her to put her on the path to reaching lean fire at the age of 27. We discuss how old she was when her parents taught different financial concepts, the money mistakes she made as a kid instead of as an adult, and how her parents created different opportunities for her to gain the money confidence that she brought into adulthood. Carol shares the number one thing that parents can do to teach their kids about money, how to leverage allowances as learning tools, and what age to start teaching your kids about money. Welcome to Find Your Freedom, Carol. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. Thanks for being here. So first, tell me about your background. Tell me a little bit about how your personal experiences have shaped your perspectives on money and life. Well, I was born and raised in Hawaii. I grew up on the island of Oahu. And a lot of people are surprised by that because I'm actually military. Both of my parents were active duty Navy for the first half of my life. And unlike most Navy, they were actually able to stay on the island for the majority of their careers. And so I, you know, born and raised in Honolulu, you know, went to elementary school, middle school and high school on Hawaii. And then when it came to growing up, the last thing my parents wanted me to do was join the Navy myself. But here we are. I decided to be that rebellious teenager. And after a uh, kind of a chance visit to the Naval Academy, I thought, wow, this is something really cool. And so I did go to ROTC instead. So I still had the Navy pay for college, but I didn't go to a service academy. What they did was I specifically chose a school that had a reserve officer's training corps, a unit as they call it. And so I still took classes. I wore the uniform once a week. I did a lot of physical fitness. And at the end of four years of college, not only did I get my degree, I also got a commission in the United States Navy. And then on top of that, I had to do a service obligation. So I just finished my five years of active duty. I'm now into the reserves for the last few years I have to finish. But at this point, I have no student debt because the Navy paid for college. That's great. And did the Navy pay for 100% of your college? It was about 95%. So the only 5% they didn't pay for was room and board. What's interesting nowadays is that different universities have different kinds of, you could say, donations or trust for that kind of thing. And right after I graduated from college, my university had a, a very generous donor come in and say, hey, we know that your ROTC scholarship doesn't pay for room and board. So all the graduates after me now have room and board paid for by this anonymous donor. So didn't work in my time, but I'm happy that the next generation is going to get it. And did you pay for that room and board through your personal savings or a savings account that your family had for college? So my parents had a 529 account set up. I was born in 1992, so at the time they had, didn't have 529 accounts. They actually started with the UTMA, 
and then they transferred it over to a 5 to 9. And by the time I got to college, there was enough money in the 5 to 9 to pay for everything. But because I had that ROTC scholarship, we only had to use a fraction of that account. That's great to hear. So you went to college, you got it paid for by the Navy. What made you interested in being in the Navy? You said you had that kind of chance visit, and you also have a military background in your family. Was there something specific that appealed to you about being in the military? Well, uh, not to borrow the uh, cliche from Moana, but I did grow up on an island surrounded by ocean. I did want to see what the rest of the world was like. As much as I like my island, there is this whole other world out there. And what attracted me about the Navy was on top of all of the, uh, you know, the, the scholarships and the ready-made job after college, because at the time when I was in high school, that was the recession. So not only did I have something paying for college, I had a ready job after college. This is a job that could take me all over the world. I would be on a ship. I could be underwater on a submarine. I could be traveling and making all kinds of very cool port calls. And that happened. My very first ship actually was stationed out in Spain. And so I got to visit 12 European countries on the Navy's dime because that's where we made port calls was places like Turkey and Greece and Bulgaria and Romania. It was it was very cool. That sounds incredible and like a really financially savvy way to travel the world. Exactly. Awesome. So let's talk about your early financial life when you were first earning and figuring out how to spend money. Do you want to tell me about that? When did you get your first job? Did you start working after college or were you working part time as a teenager? It depends on how you define a job. So there's the normal, you know, at age 14, which is the youngest age in my state, you can start working for a maximum of four hours a week. And so that's my first official job was I worked at what's called a Kumon Center. Some people pronounce it as Kumon. And it's an after school math and reading. And some centers also teach Japanese because it's actually a program from Japan. And I'd been in Kumon since I was about six years old. I was having trouble with subtraction and I wanted a little extra after school help. And next thing I know, eight years later, I'm, I'm working there. But if I were to be honest about a definition of a job, I technically started my financial lifestyle when I was about three or four years old. And the reason why was because my family had this whole setup of allowances, chores, and jobs. And so allowances was something that you got for being a good member of the family. And one of the good member of the family requirements was that you had to do your chores. But once all my chores were finished, then I could do extra jobs around the house for money. And so I had to unload the dishwasher and keep my room clean and do my own laundry. But then I could paint walls in the house for an extra $10 an hour, or I could help dad install the new toilet and get an extra $10 an hour. And by the time I was a teenager, it was changing the oil on the family car or making the grocery runs and getting a 5% delivery fee. You know, there's a lot of little cool jobs that I was getting extra money for on top of being a good member of the family and earning an allowance. I love that. So the... Extra jobs are almost like having side hustles on top of that income from your allowance that you were counting on for doing what you agreed to do inside the family unit. And I also am really interested to hear that's very cool that your parents paid you $10 an hour or, you know, 5% delivery fee for things like that, because that really gave you an idea of what a wage job would look like, what an hourly job would look like. And it's actually probably quite a bit higher than what minimum wage was at the time. It was. And it also helped me gain that self-confidence. You know, it's very easy for kids, especially those that haven't had the quote unquote real world exposure to undersell themselves. And so to, to have these jobs around the house for mom and dad, instead of working for, you know, I put a roof over your head, so you should only be getting a, a small amount. They were teaching me what I should be looking for in the real world when it came to wages. Now, my, my job, you know, when I was working at 14 years old, I was only earning a little over $6 an hour. But by the time that I had finished that job and I was going off to college almost five years later, I'd gone all 
the way up to as much as $12 an hour. And so I, I knew what I was worth thanks to all of those jobs around the house. And I knew how to negotiate upwards in salary. And my guess was at that time that you also had a good amount of experience with spending your own money and potentially saving it as well. Do you want to tell me what that looked like? Because I'm guessing it could be a little bit different than what your standard teenager did with their money. It is. And, and that's because I started not in my teenage years, but I started when I was three and four years old. I remember being, I think it was around my fourth birthday, my parents said, hey, we're giving you an allowance. It's going to be three quarters a week, which is 75 cents. But for me as a four-year-old, I didn't care that it was 75 cents. What I cared about was that I had just started kindergarten and in the school library, they had this pencil machine. It was like a, a straw machine where you click a little button and a straw comes out, only it was a pencil. And each one of those pencils cost 25 cents. So I had three quarters a week, I could get three pencils this week, or I could get six pencils next week, or I could get, you know, nine pencils the week after that. It was one of those things where I started understanding that I could spend all my money now, or I could spend all my money later. And so when I was four years old, it was pencils. When I was six years old, it was Pokemon cards. You know, when I was eight years old, it was Game Boy games. And when I got into 10 and 12, it was PlayStation games. So by the time I'm a teenager, it's things like, do I want to have a Jamba Juice after school with my friends? Do I want to go to the movie theaters? Things that, you know, all teenagers like to have. When it came to uh, clothes and things like that, what my parents did instead was, instead of having me pay for my clothes through my allowance, they actually gave me the budget. So instead of spending, let's say, $100 a month on my clothes by taking the money from my parents. They just gave me $100 and said, okay, here's the money for clothes and here's the money for toiletries for a month. You can either look really good or you can smell really good, but it's all on you to manage. Nice. So you were involved in budgeting at a young age, you know, as a child in your family and also in managing that money and making sure that it went to the right place, that you were meeting your needs with what you were allocated for those different categories. That's really, really interesting to hear about. I would love to dive deeper into how your parents educated you about money and taught you those different lessons through real life experiences. But first, I'd love to talk about your journey to financial independence, because if we can skip forward a little bit, I think hearing about your background and your early financial life, you had a really strong financial foundation when you were growing up and now you're pursuing financial independence. So when did you start pursuing that as an explicit goal? As an explicit goal, I would have to admit that wasn't until about late college and early into my first job, because before then, I didn't really know what financial independence was as a movement or as a concept. You know, one of the things my parents have been teaching me since I was maybe in uh, middle of elementary school, early middle school, was that when you have money, you have choices. And when you have choices, you have freedom. And so before there was such thing as financial independence, I just knew that money equaled choices. And so when it came to actually pursuing FI and pursuing the number, as they call it, that didn't really start until I had a real job and I realized that I could fully fund my Roth IRA in just my first month of my job versus trying to figure out how to fund my Roth IRA over a bunch of wage paychecks as a teenager. And in the military, instead of calling it the 401k, they call it the TSP. And so now I was, you know, maxing out my Roth IRA right in the first month. And then I was paying my TSP as I could going through the months. And so it was, it was more a pursuit of how can I shove money as fast as I can into these tax advantage accounts, into my brokerage accounts and wherever else, because on the flip side, I didn't have time. I was spending something like uh, 12 to 16 hour work days on the ship, six days a week. You know, when you're underway, you're living on the ship. It doesn't matter if it's Saturday or Sunday, you're still working, you're still on watch. And so it's very easy to not spend money because where were you going to spend it on a, a steel hole in the middle of the ocean? 
And then when it came to pork calls, I made the um, goals very simple. I wanted a local dinner with some local wine, and I also wanted to get some postcards to send to friends. And so by, by setting that baseline, it was very easy to not blow one, two, three thousand dollars $3,000 in ports like a lot of other sailors on my ship would. Yeah, it sounds like just by being able to set those goals and also by paying yourself first, which is something that I think we hear a lot in the financial independence community and personal finance in general, which is basically when you take that money off the top and you put it into your 401k or your TSP, you put it into your IRA, you make sure that those savings accounts are being funded before the fun stuff, before going out for dinner or buying souvenirs or anything like that. Exactly. And what I also like about that automation is that when you're in a very, very high our job, when you're spending all your time at work, the last thing you want to do is come home and have to manage your own life on top of that, you know, manage your own accounts. So not only do I like pay yourself first as a means of getting to five faster, but it's also a really good way to automate things just so you don't have to think about it. And especially on a ship in the middle of the ocean, there's no internet, there's no cell towers. So to have that all set ahead of time and to not have to think about that was wonderful. Yeah, automation is another great takeaway here where even if you're not on a ship in the middle of the ocean, not having to think about it in your everyday life, oh, am I going to save this or am I going to spend this? And it just gets taken off. You don't have to check in every day. You don't have to make sure that things are going from this account to this account. It's already set up for you. I love automation. I think it has been a huge component of my personal pursuit of financial independence. And so I'm 100% in agreement on that point. So you are now married and mm -hmm. you have a brand new baby, five-month-old daughter. Are you pursuing financial independence in tandem with your husband? Is that a, a goal as a family? It is. My husband and I met each other just a couple months after college. We both went to a Navy training school that our ships wanted us to have a skill for. And that's how we met and we fell in love and the rest is happily ever after. But when uh, my husband and I met, he didn't really know much about savings. He uh, had taken out a, a personal loan. It was something that's exclusively offered to midshipmen, you know, people that are going through the training for the Navy. And it was a very low interest loan, but he had picked up that loan to pay for a car. And that was about the extent of what he knew about finances. He had grown up in a family that had struggled at first. You know, his uh, dad was still working on his PhD. His mom was working multiple jobs and he understood what it was to not have money. And so he was very good at saving, but he, he didn't know how to invest. He, he knew that he could hold on to his money, but he didn't know how to take that money and to make it grow into more money. And as we started dating, he started educating himself as well. You know, my, my dad is in the Navy or he retired from the Navy and he still does a lot of military advising when it comes to financial independence and early retirement. And so my husband started reading my dad's blog and he started emailing back and forth with my dad. So, you know, him and the dad and law actually getting along was wonderful to see. And that became his, his goal was to understand also that freedom, understanding that by having that extra money and having that freedom that he didn't have to work if things weren't going the way he wanted to at work. You know, he could have that freedom to choose what he wanted to do with his day. When it came to our family, we were pursuing five before we even had our daughter, partly because of that lack of time that the Navy has when you're working hard, but also because the Navy is one of those high risk jobs. You know, only about one, maybe two of every 10 sailors actually make it to the 20 year retirement point. And before then, there's a possibility that you could get killed, you could get hurt, you know, you could have some kind of disqualifying medical condition that crops up, or just something could plain go wrong and it's time for you to leave the military service. And so we had been pursuing by partly to give ourselves options in case our jobs ran out and we couldn't stay in the Navy. 
But then when it came to a good crossroads in my career, where I realized I didn't want to do what my bosses were doing, and I didn't really see elsewhere on active duty that I wanted to stay, it was really easy to look back at that pursuit of FI and say, well, here's our opportunity right here. I can stop working full-time in the Navy. I can switch to part-time work. And if I wanted to, I could start a master's. If I wanted to, I could start a job. Or, hey, why don't we just start on that family we've been talking about doing while we're in our late 20s? And so that's exactly what we did was we started our family. That's great. So it sounds like your financial evolution as a couple and as a family has really grown together. And you started with that strong financial foundation. It sounds like he had one that was similar and you taught each other different things you learned from your parents and created a goal together. So do you mind sharing with me what that goal is in terms of length to reaching financial independence and whether early retirement is something that factors into that goal or if you're just looking to hit a number where you're financially independent and no longer have to pursue paying work if you don't want to. It's funny you mention it because we actually, right before COVID-19, we actually hit lean five. So we were just under a million dollars and we did the calculations and we said, whoa, if we wanted to quit our jobs tomorrow, which you can't in the military, but that's a different story. But if we wanted to quit our jobs tomorrow, we could. And then COVID-19 started going up and down and up and down. And at this point, it's a day by day question of whether or not we're at lean five anymore. But what my husband is doing right now is the Navy is paying for his master's degree. There's a very specific job that you can get, a billet as they call it, where you go to graduate school for a couple of years. And in exchange, you sign another contract to stay in the Navy for another three, four or five years, depending on how long your schooling is. And so when it comes to FI, we're always looking at that next duty station. We're going to be here for maybe one or two more years. And then we're going to be at that next duty station for maybe two or three or four more years. And then we're going to look at our numbers again and say, hey, do you want to keep going in the Navy? Are you having fun? Or do you think you're done dealing with the bureaucracy and dealing with the long hours? And do you want to just take a break and do something different? We're, uh, we're both busybodies. We can't sit still all day. It's very hard for us to do so. And so when it comes to early retirement, we're, you know, it's Mr. Money Mustache's Internet Retirement Police. We're, we're not going to be sitting on a beach all day. We may be surfing. But we also see ourselves pursuing hobbies or doing travel. And the hobbies and the travel might turn into side hustles just by themselves. So we'll, we'll see where it goes. And as always, our goal is just to have those choices available by having the money available when we get to the next fork in the road with our career. That's great. So you met Lean Fi just this year. Do you mind sharing how old you are this year? I just turned 27 and I'm going to be turning 28 later this year. And my husband, he's just a few months older than I. So he's already 28. That's great. So Lean Fi at 27 and 28, I mean, that's mind-blowing for how, how young you are. And, and it's very clear that those good habits that you had from when you were a young kid have really compounded, essentially, to be very effective. And obviously, you did a lot of hard work and you made sure that you were investing your money and doing the right things with it. And I was also really interested to hear about what your feelings are on early retirement. I can really connect with how you feel about it in terms of kind of taking it as it comes, you know, not necessarily having a distinct goal to retire and also being a busybody. I'm really into working on things that I'm passionate about. So I don't really think that I'm ever going to stop working, but potentially I will be doing something that I'm passionate about. And it turns out that it's a side hustle and I am getting paid for it. So in terms of those, like you said, early retirement, internet police, I think we're starting to evolve the fire community as a whole and the personal finance community starting to evolve into a lot of different types of fire where it could mean a little bit more like retirement optional instead of like you must retire early the moment that you hit the number that you could you know retire with 
Mm -hmm. And I like that idea of coming in and out of retirement, so to speak, where you do like a really uh, time consuming job for a few months and then you decide to take a few months off and go, you know, just play around for a little bit and then come back into an intense job or maybe just a part time job. And that that idea to have that freedom and flexibility is really attractive. Yeah, I love that. I think that's been coined as semi-retirement when you're kind of working and mixing that with moments of retirement and some people who work for longer periods of time and then take longer periods of time off, they do mini retirements. It's just so interesting how we can interweave these facets of how we want our lifestyle to look with what our financial reality is. Like you said, the more money that you have, the more choices you have, the more freedom you have to make those types of decisions, to make those choices about whether or not you want to keep working or you want to take that time off to go surfing or, you know, whatever it is that that freedom gives to you. And at the time that we're reporting this uh, podcast, we're still in the middle of COVID-19. You know, it's been a couple of months. We're still trying to figure out how to reopen the economy. But one of the immediate, uh, I would say immediate gratifications of being in FI was the ability to just handle a pandemic. When everything shut down, uh, one of the first things to go was childcare. And at the time, our baby was just two months old. And so most people would be freaking out. What are you supposed to do trying to work and trying to take care of a baby at the same time? But because I wasn't working full time, and in fact, my reserve unit, which is the part time that I do for the Navy, said, yeah, we're, we're going to stop for a few months. Don't worry about us for a little bit. And so it was nice to have that option that I could be at home for my daughter. And for my husband, while he's still doing his graduate classes, they move those classes at home. So now he's trying to balance doing his homework and, and listening in on Zoom calls and, and everything else that goes on with that. But at the same time, I can whisk our daughter away upstairs and take her out of the out of the hustle and bustle of his workday so that he gets some peace and quiet. And, and so even on that little day-to-day level of just living in your house while you're in a pandemic, it's nice to have options that buy allows. It's really great, actually, that you're able to see the pandemic and the flexibility that you had in the pandemic is, you know, potentially there's a positive there, right? You have more time with your daughter and your husband's home more. And I'm sure you guys are spending more time as a family together than maybe you would have in, quote unquote, let's say normal non-COVID circumstances, right? Right. And it's wonderful. Yeah, that sounds amazing. So, Let's touch on then family and finances, because I know that this is a topic that's dear to you, and you and your father actually recently wrote a book about it together. Um, Can you tell me a little bit about the book? Sure. So the book is called Raising Your Money Savvy Family for a Next Generation Financial Independence. It's less about the child psychology because neither my dad nor I are psychologists. We have no idea. And it's not about the professional investing because neither one of us are financial advisors. We we just know things from what we've learned over the internet in the last decade. It's, it's about the memoirs and the lessons that we've learned from my dad raising me. And of course, you know, my dad and I are the authors. I was raised by both my parents, both my dad and my mom. And it started at a very young age. You know, uh, there was this, uh, it was an accident, but I almost choked on a quarter as a kid. And that was the beginning of my financial uh, education was, hey, you don't eat money. That's that's not food. And so at the age of two, it was understanding that money is not food. And then at the age of three, it was understanding how to count money. And it was, it was all these life experiences that we realized by the time I was in elementary school that other families hadn't been experiencing. You know, I'd I'd been quite used to talking with my mom and dad about the price of a McDonald's ice cream cone or how much Beanie Babies cost or where am I going to pay for the next Pokemon cards. But with other families, it it wasn't that way growing up. Others were doing the, hey, can I have $5 for the movie exchange growing up? You know, there wasn't really an allowance going on in the family. And so what this book is about is the personal experiences that come down into actionable steps. 
For example, when I was in early elementary school, it was all about just talking about money. Hey, you know, this is how you scan your credit card at the grocery store. You know, here's $20 to pay for McDonald's when we go and get a family meal together. You know, hey, look at that really nice car. If you want that nice car, you're going to have to get a really good job and a really good paycheck. And it wasn't anything technical or complicated. It was just about starting that dialogue. And so by the time I get into late elementary school and early middle school, well, then now you can get a little bit more specific with that dialogue. You can start adding in, hey, this is what a checking account is. This is what a savings account is. This is how you save your money. This is how you can donate to charity. And then when you get into late middle school and early high school, this is what investments are. This is how you invest in the stock market. This is how you use a mutual fund. This is what a Roth IRA is. And this is what a 401k is. And you just kept incrementally stepping it up based on how the child was maturing. It wasn't like you had to do this at age four. You didn't have to do this at age eight. You didn't have to get a credit card at 18. It wasn't very specific. It was all based on how we felt I was progressing and how much I was maturing and understanding. Some of the milestones that we discuss is I got a credit card at age 13 and I got a checking account at the age of nine. So I'm, I'm running around middle school registration. I'm writing my own checks that I'm getting all the teachers' attention and I'm getting the parents' attentions. And that's when my parents had to start answering other questions. Hey, how are you teaching your daughter to do this? How do you trust her with a checkbook at such a young age? And then it got to the point where my parents were retired and I was off in college Mom and dad were going to all these financial meetups. This is Chautauqua and FinCon and all of the other Camp Fives that are going on, for example, Camp Mustache. And at those meetings, people started saying, okay, we get it. You're Fi. Your wife is Fi. You both did 20 years in the military. You don't have to work ever again, yada, yada, yada. What are you doing for your kids? And I'm an only child, but mom and dad realized that it's still not normal. It's still not normal for people to talk about how to raise your kids for financial independence because most people are still figuring this out in college or even later in their 20s and 30s. And so that's when, you know, mom finally reached over to dad and said, honey, you need to write this book. And dad came and told me and my husband the story and we're like, oh, I'll join in. I'll, I'll start writing this with you. And from there, the stories just started flowing out. That's incredible to hear. And I just wanted to touch on one point there. So your parents actually retired early as well. When did they retire early? And, and was that an explicit goal of theirs? Are you aware of? Yes and no. So in the military, like I said, you always have to be prepared in case you get medically disqualified as the term is medically disqualified means that you just, you know, you, you fell down something and now you broke something and you can't do your normal day to day military job anymore. So you might have to leave the military. And so for my parents, um, when it came to financial independence, they, they were just trying to save as much money as they could in case something went wrong with the military and they needed to go elsewhere. And the other thing about the military and federal jobs in general, once you hit the 20-year point, you're actually eligible for a pension. So if you start your military career at age 21 or 22, that means that you can retire at as early as age 41 or 42. And if you enlist, that means you can retire as early as age 38 because you joined the military at age 18. And so my parents were fortunate. Both of them did manage to make it to 20 years. In my mom's case, she did more than 20 years. And so both of them have a pension. But because they were saving so hard in the first place, because they were trying to put away as much money as they could in case something went wrong, wrong with their career, they could live off their investments. They didn't actually need their pensions. And so I would say that financial independence wasn't something that they were actively pursuing because, again, the, the movement hadn't really quite started and the ideas weren't really there yet. But they also recognized that money was choice. 
that's amazing that even before, you know, I'm, I'm also 26 turning 27. And so even before we had a term for this, I would say in, in our lifetime, that's when the, the term came up when we were probably around high school or college age. But our parents had been pursuing things like this as well. My parents have never explicitly used the term fire. I don't think they've ever heard of it, but will be retiring before traditional retirement age. So it'd be considered early retirement, not nearly as early as your parents. Was that in their 40s when they were able to retire? My dad retired at 42, and I got to do the math on my mom, uh, about 47, 48 years old, I think, is when she quote unquote retired. And, you know, for my dad, he has not worked a day since. Uh, he actually, his hair is longer than mine. He has a customary surfer's ponytail. And for my mom, she she's done some volunteer work with the military where she's worked in one of those, you know, spousal network kinds of, of jobs. And she did it while she was having fun. And after a while, she decided I'd like more time at home. My mom is known as Saturday Night Marge. She she tells the people that she sees at meetups for financial you know conventions and such. She'll say, what do you want to do on a Saturday night? I'm the person that does what I want on a Saturday night every day of my life. I can do it on a Monday afternoon. I can do it on a Tuesday morning. I can do it whenever I want. That's incredible. And I think that's what a lot of us envision when we want that financial independence is the ability and the freedom to do what we'd love to do on vacation or what we'd love to do on Saturday night when we feel like we just have that little piece of free time and, and choice all the time. You know, take those passions and take those interests and make them our lifestyle design. So that's great to hear. You're in the second generation now of financial independence in your family. And now you have a daughter. So you're building currently the third generation there. Let's talk about teaching kids about finances. Your daughter's five months old now, so she might be a little bit young, but how young can you start introducing these concepts to a child? You can start as soon as a kid starts recognizing what money is. You know, you'll, you'll see kids that are two, three, four years old, especially if they have older siblings, that see when money is being exchanged. They understand that if they want ice cream from the ice cream truck, they have to have cash. They, you know, they see mom and dad at the, um, at the restaurant or at the grocery store, and they're using this piece of plastic to pay for things. And kids are recognizing from a very early age that there's something going on in this exchange. There's something important about it. And so as soon as kids recognize what's going on, as soon as you see them observing these monetary transactions, you can start talking with them about it. And it's that very simple conversation of, look, in order for me to get all these groceries, I have to pay for them. And I can pay for them by using this credit card. But this credit card is based off of this cash I have in my wallet. And, you know, just let kids take a look at it. I had a play cash register as a kid. It had fake plastic coins. And I would just play with it like it was playing with marbles. You know, I would stack them in different stacks and I would make little towers out of them and just play with the money. But that meant that I was getting more and more familiar with what coins could be. And by compounding those lessons, just by starting with the conversation and then just letting the kids start asking questions and coming up with crazy ideas and just naturally steering them, that's as early as you can start. And I think that's a really great point for parents. Parents know that their kids have a lot of questions, right? And that they're curious about everything. And I think the way traditionally that, especially in America, that we talk about money is that it's a taboo and that it's not something that children are equipped to discuss. They don't have jobs, right? They don't make an income. And so a lot of parents, I would say, don't typically involve kids in those conversations. So I'd love for you to kind of elaborate more about how we can get rid of that taboo about money and let our kids know that things cost money. And the way that we make money is by going to work. And then we spend it by giving these green bills or these, you know, silver coins or this 
piece of plastic to whoever we're trading for whatever they're giving us, like the groceries or the ice cream cone. Exactly. The, the way I see it is that money and personal finance is a lot like learning how to socialize and be kind to other people. And it's a lot like, you know, personal hygiene. You know, you're teaching kids how to brush their teeth as soon as they get teeth, but we're not teaching them how to deal with money as soon as they recognize that a transaction is. And so I think the best way to, you know, I'm, I'm not saying you should go out there and discuss your salary with your next door neighbor. I know that we're not quite ready for that culturally as a nation. But what I am saying is something along the lines of if you're teaching your kids how to look both ways when crossing the street and to brush their teeth every night before bed, then, then start teaching them a little bit more about, hey, you know, before you go out and buy all the candy in the world, what if you save that money so that you could get a Beanie Baby, so that you could get your own DVD, so that you could get something bigger? You know, just, just start having that conversation that makes money a normal thing to discuss within your family versus a taboo subject. Yeah, and definitely being able to answer those questions, right? I think a lot of parents might feel that they're not equipped because they're not financial planners, for example. But I think any adult with any level of experience with earning and spending money has the resources to be able to explain those simple concepts to a child. Agreed. And especially in this modern age with the internet, oh, the resources are amazing. You know, I remember as a kid, there was this book called If You Made a Million. And it was exactly what it sounded like. If you made a million and it walks through all these different things, you could have a million pieces of, of this kind of candy. You could buy a, a, a ticket to see the spaceship to the moon or, you know, all these little fictional ideas of a million. But nowadays I could open up a YouTube video for my daughter and it could be the preschool edition of the video or the high school edition of the video to talk about compounding interest. One of the mistakes I see a lot of families make is they try to give their kids books. And it's the same mistake my family made is they tried to give me two to three 100 page chapter books to read about money and no kid wants to do that i mean we want to play video games and go outside and ride our bikes the last thing we want to do is sit there and read a dry money book but what really worked was getting articles you know the the kind of clickbait that you see on facebook or just something that you see in an ad in a corner of your favorite blog that that kind of little article to work with was a lot more digestible and for my dad a lot of that was from the cnbc money page, you know, msn.com had that little click in the corner that talked about money. And then for a while, it was the Susie Orman, Can I Afford It? segments. Not, not her entire show by any means. It was just that one Can I Afford It? segment. And in that segment, she would take in a caller that would have some kind of desire. It could be a nice car. It could be a dream vacation. It could be a piece of jewelry. And she would just, she called it, show me the money. She would walk through all of your savings and all of your expenses. And you would talk about whether or not you could afford this based on the money you were saving. And just as it was a game between Susie and her caller, it was a game for me as a teenager to, to watch that as well and try to guess whether that um, caller would be approved or denied. So it's just those little, those little chunks. You didn't have to start with The Millionaire Next Door. You didn't have to start with any of these big books. You could just start with articles and videos and just little interactions day by day. Yeah, and I can actually see in my personal finance background, now that you mentioned, you know, the reading the books about it, I think a lot of kids struggle, even if they do read the books about it, to apply the knowledge that they get because children don't have a lot of money. Even if you're doing some hourly work and you're making some wage. I remember reading a book about investing when I was probably, I don't know, 15 or 16. Um, and I was working at a minimum wage job at the time, part-time while I was going to school. 
And it said if I invested a relatively small sum of money at the age, you know, of 18 and continued kind of growing that as I got older, then I would have a million dollars at a very young age. But I didn't take action on that knowledge because I was looking at my paychecks that were like $100, $120. I was like, there's no way I could invest money. And so I kind of struggled to see that application in my life at the time. But there are smaller ways, like you were talking about, to be able to to make those applications, uh, especially for younger kids when, you know, you were saying you were using your checkbook to pay for things at school if you had to pay for, you know, the field trips or registrations and, you know, taking the cash and giving it to the person at the grocery store. And, and I can also see how that's a barrier for parents is that when it comes to a lot of things for money, you have to be 18 or older. You know, a lot of credit cards require you to be 18. A lot of checking accounts require you to be 18. And I think that's part of the invisible barrier that people think when it comes to money is, oh, we have to be 18. But one of the things my parents did was they created, they're fake, but they created very similar environments. You know, we had something called the kid 401k. And it worked exactly like a real 401k. If I put my money in the 401k, then my parents would put money in the 401k. And the interest rates were outstanding. It was something like 12%. I mean, it was fantastic compounding. But what we did with this 401k, we started when I was eight years old. It started on my eighth birthday. And the goal for any kid at the time was to get a car when they're 16. So we started on my eighth birthday. By the time I would be on my 16th birthday in that eight-year period, you know, a a whole lifetime for an eight-year-old, it would have $5,000 in it. And $5,000 was just enough to get what we called an island beater, you know, a car that was never going to make a long distance, but at least it would take me between school and the grocery store and the movies and, and home. And so that was, uh, it was very artificial. You know, it was all done with a savings account. Dad had a, his own, his own checkbook register that was just fake numbers but the money was real. I was putting in my real money. Mom and dad were putting in their real money. And in the end, I got to learn what a 401k was. I learned about the magic of that. And so by the time that I'm 21 years old and I'm in the Navy and we call that 401k a TSP, I was ready. I knew exactly what I needed to do. I needed to put this amount of money in every month because then the military was going to match in this amount of money. And if I maximized it to this amount and the Navy put in this amount of money as well, then it would start compounding over these many years. And the knowledge was all there. You know, everything I needed to know was already ready to go. The only thing I'd been waiting on was the legal age to get there. Right. And you had all of this practice, which really builds money confidence. That's a thread that I'm seeing throughout this entire conversation that we're having is that you were able to handle this money by yourself when you were at a young age. And so you had a lot of confidence with your ability to manage it as an adult. And I think that with myself, I think my parents did give me a really solid uh, financial background and I had a savings account and I had a job since I was 14. And so I was building that confidence I don't think I had it on the level that you did because I was never dealing with interest or anything that compounded or being able to see the sums of money or the multiplication of money that you see once you're an adult and you're 18 and you're able to get that, you know, high yield savings account or you're able to get a 401k or something like that. But I think money confidence is really important. And I think it's something that a lot of young adults struggle with because they haven't had the background. So as parents, if we can instill that into our kids by giving them practice, real world applications of how they can use money. that's a great way to teach your kids to be financially savvy and have them be able to act that way when they're adults and they have their own money to spend. And we put the spreadsheet, the the math that my parents did to make the kid 401k, we actually put that spreadsheet into the book as well. Parents don't really know how to create that artificial environment. We tried to put that information in the book as well so that it's not only, you know, how to do it, but really here's exactly how you do it. 
And how do you make saving money attractive to kids? Uh, I know you mentioned a couple examples, but I know I was a little bit resistant to saving money. I kind of saw the gamut, actually, in attitudes towards saving money. I have two siblings, a very saving-oriented sister. I was kind of moderate. I like to spend half and save half. And then my brother was a spendthrift. He loved to spend every cent that he had. So what can you do to encourage your kids to save money and you know, make sure that they're not just doing it because they're told to do it, but they see the actual value in in doing that. And you make a good point. Every kid is different, right? There's no way that there's going to be this cookie cutter way to make every kid motivated. And so part of that motivation is internal. Part of it is that you just have to, as my dad would say, you just have to let the kids light the sparklers on fire and run around the yard shooting everything off, you know, just, just burn everything, right? But what happens is for different kids at different rates and different ages, they start to realize what is important to them. I remember I used to love spending all of my allowance on Pokemon cards. And then I realized after a while that Pokemon cards weren't really worth that anymore. All I had was a stack of cards and no money. And then it was a little bit older, you know, all I had was a stack of video games and no money. And after a while, because I had so many years, you know, I had a full decade between age four and age 14 when I started my real job, I had a full decade of experience of spending money. And so I knew what kind of spending made me happy. And I knew what kind of spending didn't make me happy. I I knew what it felt like to spend under the peer pressure. And I knew what kind of happiness it was to make my own decision. I remember when I got my job at 14, I spent maybe three weeks debating whether or not to buy an iPod touch because iPod touches were the cool thing back then. But I finally, you know, I had saved all this money and I felt like it's okay. I can spend $150 or whatever it was at the time on this really cool device. And that was that power of I made that money and I earned that money and I made this financial fiduciary decision was wonderful. But it took a decade to figure that out for me personally. And it could take other kids longer. And so that's why it's nice to start as early as you can with kids as soon as they start having that money conversation, because then they can start making those mistakes and keep making those mistakes and keep making those mistakes and keep making those mistakes until they finally figure out and they finally have that personal wake up call of, I don't want to be poor anymore, or I don't want to take care of stuff anymore, or, you know, I want to have something bigger in my life. Yeah. And I love that emphasis on making mistakes because it's really great for kids to make mistakes in a safe environment, particularly when you're spending money that's allowance money or it's from a part-time job when you're a kid. The stakes aren't super high. You know, you're not going to get into bankruptcy. You're not going to get into debt, right? You're not... No credit scores. Yeah. Right. You're not going to ruin your credit. You're not going to make those major adult mistakes that could really impact your financial future in the long term, but you're making those decisions that you might feel regretful about. You might say, you know, I don't really like this Beanie Baby six months later, but I spent all my money on it and now I can't buy this new thing that I want. And you kind of learn about how your money serves your needs and how your needs change and how needs and wants are different. I think it's really great to give kids the ability to make those mistakes in that environment under the age of 18 because it's low stakes. It's it's really a good place and a good time to make those mistakes. Exactly. And one of the other things that parents can do is they can bring up the conversation. You know, if the kids buy the Pokemon cards and all of a sudden they're sitting in the back of the closet six months later, well, the parents can be like, well, hey, I, I haven't seen you play with those Pokemon cards in six months. How How's that going for you? And that's when kids realize, oh, oh, I spent all that money. Oh, you know, it, you know, if, if the kids aren't having that realization on their own, this is where the parents, like you said, in a safe environment can kind of poke and prod and, and have the conversations. Now, it's, it's different 
a conversation is different than a lecture. You know, you don't want to stand over your kids and say, I told you not to spend all that money on Pokemon cards and look at them sitting in the back of the closet now and they're doing nothing good for you. Why did you spend that money? No, no, that, that's not the point. The, the point is to have the conversation to let kids come to their own conclusion of, oh, maybe I shouldn't have spent that money. I probably would have been happier if I had saved that money because then instead of Pokemon cards, I could have had a Pokemon, you know, Game Boy game instead. Absolutely. So let's talk about allowances. How did that work in your household? And I guess I'm asking this question because I see a lot where parents will give their kids an allowance and the kid will quote unquote waste it, right? They will spend it on whatever they want. The parent will not feel like the child learned any valuable financial education from it. So so let's talk about how to handle allowances in a valuable way that can create some education around the value of money. One thing that parents forget is they look at kids and they think, oh my goodness, this is so wasteful. But you kind of have to think about the economy of scale. When a kid is taking a $5 allowance and they blow that entire $5 on Hershey bars, we're only talking about $5. Now, if that kid didn't have that experience as a kid, what happens when you give that kid their inheritance, $5 million, for example, and they blow all $5 million on something frivolous that you see as frivolous. Let's say it's a yacht for some people, or it's a sports car for some people, or, or maybe even just a house for other people. It all depends on what your family's personal values are. But the point in all that is that you're not trying to make a kid perfect with money. You're just trying to give them experience and you're trying to teach them values. So some kids may say it is completely worth to them to spend $5 million on a sports car, but they happen to be a sports car enthusiast and that's something that they're passionate about. And maybe it's something that they've turned into a side hustle and it's something that they see as not only their livelihood, but their lifestyle. But that's different than the kid who is just uh, really a brat, you know, the kind of kid that has been able to live on a silver spoon, has been able to spend money however they want without consequence. The, the whole point behind allowance is for kids to feel not the consequence of a bad credit score or the consequence of dealing with debt collectors. The, the, the whole idea is for the kids to realize the consequence of their actions. And you as adults, you know, you're, you're perfectly reasonable, logical adults. It's taken you however many years it was to get to that stage of adulthood. But you had to go through that practice yourself. You had to go through your own growing up and your own maturing. And if you went and talked to your six-year-old self about the things you bought when you were six years old, you'd probably think that they were pretty stupid yourself. So we have to give kids that time to gain that life experience. The, the biggest thing, the biggest mistake you can make with the kid in an allowance is to take that allowance away because they're quote unquote, not spending it correctly. Well, all that encourages the kid to do is to try to squirrel away their money so that no one can take it from them. You know, if, if they don't spend it the way that they want to, then their parents are going to spend it on what they think is the right way to do. And so that's just encouraging people to spend their money. That's not encouraging people to make rational decisions about their money based on the lifestyle that they want. Yes, I like that you mentioned that too, where if we thought back to what we spent our money on when we were six years old or eight years old, we would probably say that was wasteful. I didn't need those toys or that candy or whatever we were buying. But by being able to spend on the things that we wanted and seeing how that worked, that is really valuable experience. And so an adult's perspective and a child's perspective are going to be totally different. But if if the goal is for them to get an experience with money, then maybe the perspective for the parent might 
want to be coming from a place of uh, making mistakes is exactly what we want them to do. Having those realizations is the goal, not that your six-year-old invests every cent that they get and then they have a couple thousand dollars when they're 18, you know? And and you're right. You know, if kids have plenty of time to make mistakes. They, they have this whole childhood in front of him that they can figure out how to do it. But we're not giving them that opportunity if we take away their allowance. If we're making them wait until they're quote unquote mature enough or old enough or whatever it is, the phrase that we want to use, we're not letting them figure it out. And what's going to happen if the parents aren't around? You know, if something tragic were to happen or life were to get in the way and now your kids have no lessons to learn from. What if, you know, one day you're relying on your kids to make sure that you're taken care of, whether that means the kids are taking care of you in their house or they're putting you in a care home or whatever the situation is. Wouldn't you want your kids to be able to figure out what they want to do with their lives sooner rather than trying to juggle figuring out money and figuring out how to take care of their parents, figuring out how to take care of their kids and all these different things that could come at once. So what do you remember your parents trying to teach you that didn't go well, that you had difficulty learning or that they needed to change their approach with you about? Some things happened too young. The first time my dad tried to introduce investing to me, I was probably eight years old and it didn't go over very well. I just didn't understand percentages. I was barely learning how to do fractions. I just didn't like the concept of investing. You know, I didn't, I didn't, I wasn't interested in buying stock. And so what my parents would do is they would say, okay, it's too young. We're going to come back to that later. And they would try again a few months later or a few years later and then I was actually ready. Then I had heard about the stock market. I had heard about Disney stock and how I could own a little piece of the company of Disney and that little piece could make me money. And so now I was ready to do that. And so when it comes to parents and when it comes to your teaching your kids about money, give it a try just to give it a shot. It might go completely wrong and it may be the absolute worst time to do it. Okay, back off. Say we're not going to do that again for a while, but, but come back a while later and try that again. Yeah, so that's great to know, too, is that if you try something and you feel like it, quote unquote, fails, that's not the be all end all of how investing is going to go for young Carol forever, right? Maybe it's not the right time, you know, come back in a year or once that, you know, foundational knowledge you found out, oh, right, the compounding doesn't make sense if the the math understanding isn't there behind explaining that. So I really love that. I think what I'm hearing from this is that not only do parents have to be willing for their kids to make mistakes, but they have to be willing for themselves to make mistakes with how they're trying to teach their kids. I mean, I think that's like a common thread through parenthood anyway, is that you're you're going to try things and they're not going to work and you're going to make some mistakes because there's no handbook, right, of, of how we're supposed to do everything. But on the other hand, we can't be too afraid to try things because that's doing a disservice to our children as well. Exactly. And it's it's okay for your kids to see parents making mistakes too, because that teaches kids that they don't have to be perfect. And that's one less pressure to deal with. You know, they don't have to try to figure out how to be exactly what mommy and daddy wants them to be. And they don't feel like they have to keep pursuing what mom and dad wants them to be. They can grow their own life and their own confidence and their own self-worth. And that is probably going to be more valuable than anything else a kid could learn, whether that's related to money or if that's just in general related to the personality of a kid. Absolutely. 
So I wanted to talk about this experience of writing a book with your dad about your mutual experiences with, you know, your parents teaching you and you learning about money at a young age. So I wanted to ask, was there anything that when you were writing this, you know, as you're writing it from your two different perspectives that he saw totally different than you saw? And it was kind of a, a funny situation. It was. Uh, when we first started writing the book, it actually started with a dinner table conversation. Um, Mom and dad were going to an East Coast uh, by meetup. I can't remember what camp or what event it was exactly. But my husband and I were living in Virginia at the time. The camp happened to be in Virginia. And so we were all together at the dinner table one night. And mom and dad said, hey, you won't believe what just happened. The whole story about how we should write a book about raising financially savvy kids. And I was like, oh, I remember, you know, this story, buying ice cream in the line at McDonald's. And I remember buying my calculator off Craigslist and all these little bits and pieces and stories. And so dad and I created a Google Doc, thank goodness for Google Docs, because then while my family is living in Hawaii and I'm traveling all over the world with the Navy, we could type in our stories and start typing the book together in the same document. And so dad would say something like, you know, make sure that your kids are comfortable running around the yard with 4th of July sparklers. And I would say something like, oh yeah, I actually did spend my money on 4th of July sparklers at one point in my life. And you know, that we could write about that story in. And dad would say, this is how we did the 401k. And you know, this is the perspective from the parent of how the 401k works. And I can say, well, from a kid's perspective, I wasn't thinking about that at all. I was thinking about this instead. You know, I didn't think about the 401k as a way to just get a car. I thought about it as a way to have a lot of money, you know, and it was it was nice because I could go back into my childhood memories and I could write my perspective, whereas my dad could write his perspective from the parent. And I think that's what make our, makes our book so unique is even though we're not child psychologists and we're not financial advisors, we can give you an inside window into what both parties were thinking at the time that all of these financial lessons are going on. Exactly. And I bet these conversations between you and your dad that you taught your parents something about how you perceived their lessons that they didn't know before. Yeah, there was a, there was a nasty surprise. Um, I wrote in the book, I said, it doesn't help if your kids are given actual chapter books, you should give them articles instead. Because if you give them books, they're probably only going to read about one in 10 books. And my dad actually looked at me and said, oh, so I've been giving you books for years and you haven't read all of them? I was like, well, I, I finally read that last book last week. I mean, I, I'm, I'm 26 years old and I finally read that book. Does that count? So <laughs> it was it was, it was was kind of a, a funny situation where, you know, my dad didn't even realize that I hadn't read most of the books that he'd given me growing up. I, I'm getting around to it now, but it was one of those situations where we just had no idea that that was happening. And I wanted to ask, what is the number one thing that you think families can do to create multi-generational financial independence? I would say that the number one thing families can do is have that conversation and talk. There was a very good article that I read a couple of days ago. It actually came from the publication Barron's and it talks about money and how it's not just about the actual number, it's about the value in the family. And that made sense to me because that's what we talked about in the book was that when you're having those conversations between parent and kid, you're talking about the value of money, not only in terms of whether it means you have choices or it means that you can have more candy or whatever it is that you value, you're, you're talking about values. Yeah. And 
this is making me think a bit about money mindsets because the way that we value money, either explicitly or implicitly, and the way that we see it treated as kids can really create those kind of silent scripts for us. Whether, you know, our parents tell us about it or not, we might think if money has been tight when we were kids that, you know, we have a scarcity mindset around it. And so, you know, we need to make sure that we keep it and we save it. And by opening up those conversations, I think it can make it easier for us to dive into those money mindsets that we have at a younger age because it's that's some some hard work that people who haven't had those open conversations have to do when they're young adults and when they're adults to figure out where these money habits come from because they haven't ever explicitly discussed the value of money but they've always had some sort of emotional or implicit connection to what money means. There's no way to spare kids from those feelings around money because we do see it even if we're not discussing it. And also to understand what your intentions are as parents. You know, we we haven't really talked about uh, generational wealth in terms of what about the family estate. Uh, when it when it comes to different generations, one of the one of the more trickier things to do is handing wealth off from generation to generation to generation. You know, folks are always talking about the big inheritance or the small inheritance or the debt that family leaves behind when loved ones die, especially when parents die. But but what happens if it doesn't go in a very clean cut death way? You know, in in my side of the family, there's a string of Alzheimer's, and my dad wrote an article about how he had to deal with his dad's Alzheimer's. And my grandfather, my dad's dad, had to deal with my great-grandfather's Alzheimer's. And so there's there's some family situations where you need to talk about the intentions of money now while people are still in good cognizance, because there may be a day one day where they're not dead, but they're also not capable of handling their money. So so what do you do with dad's money? It, it's dad's money. It's it's not your money, or at least it's, it seems like dad's money, but dad doesn't know how to take care of the money in whatever the situation may be. And so that's one other thing that we talk about in the book is how do you have that conversation for the generational wealth in terms of the estate or the care of parents or, you know, how to how to start that conversation with finances as a kid so that you can carry that forward into later on adult life. That's another great piece of this puzzle. And I think this book is going to be really helpful to help people understand both sides, both the parent and the kid. And uh, even for people who don't have kids yet, like I'm looking forward to reading it. I don't have kids yet, but I think it's great to think about how we communicate about money socially at large, right? So I would love for you to tell me when does uh, Raising Your Money Savvy Family for Next Generation Financial Independence coming out? So the latest uh, update is that it's going to be ready for order in July. And so we're we're in the final stages. It's almost ready. We've picked the cover. Everything is written up. It's just a matter of lining up the printers and making the copies. And so we think that right around late July is when you'll be able to start ordering the book. July 2020, I should specify. And where can people go to buy the book? So right now it's going to be on choosefy.com. There'll be a link available there for pre-order. And then eventually we'll start moving on to the bigger publishers, places like amazon.com and wherever else our publisher will be able to make deals. But starting with the choosefy website and then also starting with Amazon once we're able to get that up and running. My dad and I, we started a Facebook page called uh, Raising Your Money Savvy Family for Next Generation Financial Independence, just like the book cover. And so we'll put um, posts on that page as well. All right. And I encourage everyone to go there. I will include links to all of this in the show notes for the episode. Are you ready for some rapid fire style questions? Bring it on. What does freedom mean to you? 
Freedom means the ability to have choice. It means that you get to decide. No one else can decide for you. And you can make that decision on your own time. And what would you do if you could retire right now? Honestly, it's exactly what I'm doing right now. I mean, you don't you don't see my daughter in the background, but I get to be at home with family. I get to be there and watch all those little moments as my daughter grows. That's great to hear. It sounds like you have things figured out, you know. Um, what would you do if you could never retire? Oh, that's the thing is that I don't think I could accept it as never retire. I have a feeling that I would still be railing against it in some way that I will figure out how to retire. I will figure out how to have the freedom to do exactly what I want to do with my day. And so again, it's back to that, that uh, definition of retire. Does it mean not working all day or does that mean working the way I want to all day? I love that answer. I don't think I've ever had someone say, well, I wouldn't accept that I'm going to figure out a way to solve it. And I love that because I feel really similarly, you know, and I would imagine from our conversation that you would find something that you feel passionate about that doesn't feel like work. And it would be able to be the most fulfilling non-retirement that you could find. If you could go back in time, what one piece of financial or lifestyle advice would you give yourself in your early 20s? That's a hard one. And the reason I say that's a hard one is because I look back on my 20s and I think, no, you, you pretty much did what I would have wanted you to do. You know, you, you put away as much money as you could. You, you maxed out all your accounts. You, you still had a little fun on the side. I, you pretty much did everything I wanted you to do. Thank you. Just do it again. That's awesome to hear. So I think that that wraps this up beautifully because it sounds like as someone who had a really solid financial education as a kid, you don't seem to have, you know, financial regrets or advice. You go back and say, you know what, don't make this financial mistake. And so that's super promising for the story that you guys are putting out about how you can educate and raise money savvy families. Just say it five times fast. Yes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Thank you, Carol. Where can everyone go online to learn more about you? Oh, I've already mentioned the Facebook page, uh, Raising Your Money Savvy Family for Next Generation Financial Independence. I'm uh, in a lot of the groups all over Facebook, Choose Fi, Afford Anything, um, all those different, oh, Bigger Pockets Money, for example. I'm, I'm in a lot of those pages. I am working on starting up a blog called Childfire. You know, it's wildfire, but childfire. And so that, that blog is still under construction right now. And I can also be reached um, through email, carol at childfire.com. And I can also be reached through Facebook. You can just send me a message. Great. Thanks for being on the podcast, Carol. Thank you for having me. I really enjoyed being here today. To check out the show notes for this episode, which includes links to resources mentioned in today's interview and where you can go to learn more about Carol, go to 20free.co slash episode 38. In the show notes, I will include a link to Carol's new book, Raising Your Money Savvy Family for Next Generation Financial Independence. I want this to be more than just a podcast for listening to, so I'm making it a do-cast, where you're getting information from the podcast that you can take action on to create real outcomes in your life. I call these power moves. If you implement even one of these tactics into your life, you're taking a powerful step towards finding your freedom. Here are six power moves we learned from this conversation. Power move number one, talk about money openly. The number one thing families can do to teach their kids about money is to have the conversation. Talk about money with your kids. It's not about the actual numbers that you discuss. It's about teaching them the value of money. That means educating them on what different things cost, how you use money to fill your needs and get things that you want as a family, and how much your family budgets for certain things. The more open you are about money, the more opportunities your child has to learn and ask questions. Power move number two, teach your kids at their level. 
you can start having conversations with your kids about money as soon as they start recognizing what money is. Once a child can see money being exchanged and understand that exchange, they can learn about what money does. Carol started learning about money at the age of four. Her parents gave her an allowance, and she was able to practice spending by buying pencils at school. As she got older, their money lessons got more advanced. She was writing checks from her checking account at the age of nine and got a credit card at age 13. Her parents would give her the money they had budgeted for clothes or personal care items and give her the discretion on how and where to spend it. In high school, her parents paid her for jobs she did around the house, like changing the oil or picking up the groceries. By starting early and progressing your lessons as your child gains more understanding, you can raise a financially savvy adult. Power move number three. Keep your educational materials short. Kids are not going to want to read chapter books about money. Carol surprised her dad by telling him that she didn't read all the books that he gave her as a kid. She started reading them in adulthood. When she was a kid, it was much more accessible for her to read a short article, watch a short video, or listen to a segment of a podcast. Instead of overwhelming your kid with information, keep it short and to the point. Easily digestible short content can still provide amazing financial education. Power move number four. Allow your kids to make money mistakes. Whether you talk to your kid about money or not, they're going to make money mistakes. It's much better for them to make mistakes that are low stakes while they're young, like blowing their whole allowance on candy. When your kids are young, they can't ruin their credit, face bankruptcy, or go deep into debt. That means that childhood is the best opportunity for kids to make mistakes. This leads to power move number five, which is have conversations instead of lectures. When your kid makes mistakes, use this as a learning opportunity. But make sure that you're having conversations about spending money rather than giving lectures about how your kid is wasting their allowance. Help your kid to come to their own conclusions about how an experience with money made them feel and how they might act differently in the future. If your kid decides that they would be happier if they saved their money instead of spending it all, they will learn that habit. But just being told to save their money won't give them experience or allow them to come to their own conclusions. By practicing with money and inevitably messing up, your kid will be able to build money confidence. They will get a lot of their mistakes out of the way early on in life and can continue into adulthood making good money decisions. Power move number six, simulate real-world money scenarios. One big barrier to teaching kids about money is that children can't open certain accounts until they're 18. Carol's dad got around this barrier by creating what they called the Kid 401k. He simulated what a 401k did inside of a checking account to demonstrate the power of compound interest. They started when she was 8 and set a goal for her to be able to buy a $5,000 car when she was 16. By practicing investing when she was young, Carol was well prepared to max out her thrift savings plan when she was a young adult in the military. She understood that the Navy would match her contributions and how her money would grow as it compounded over the years. Try something with your kids that simulates a real-life scenario with real money so that they can get experience early on in life. That is the sixth and final power move from my conversation with Carol Pittner about teaching kids about money. Do you want to finally feel good about your finances and have a stress-free plan to create a life you love? 
It's time for you to reach your biggest money goals, like paying off debt, building up savings, and using your money to create your ideal life. As a money coach, I will help you gain clarity about what freedom looks like for you, develop a strategy to get there, and overcome your money roadblocks on the path to financial and lifestyle freedom. Let's hop on the phone. During our free 15-minute coaching call, we're going to develop a vision for your ideal life and how your finances fit in. Not only are you going to get massive clarity, you're also going to get a free spending plan spreadsheet just for booking the call. Visit 20free.co slash moneycoaching to get your free money coaching call and budget spreadsheet right now. That's the word 20, F-R-E-E dot C-O slash moneycoaching. If you enjoyed today's episode, make sure you're subscribed to the Find Your Freedom podcast on whatever app you're using to listen to this episode. Do me a favor and also leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Go to 20free.co slash iTunes to be redirected to the page on Apple Podcasts where you can leave your rating and review. I really appreciate it. If you think this episode would help someone you know, please share it with a friend. Thank you so much for tuning in to this episode of the Find Your Freedom podcast. My name is Becky. You can connect with me on Instagram and Twitter at 20freeco and sign up for free resources and email updates at www.20free.co. That's the word 20, F-R-E-E dot C-O. I'll talk to you next week on another episode of the Find Your Freedom podcast.